Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello, welcome to Inwood Book Club. How's it going, Mike? Good. Uh, the first thing I've got to say on this, I want to give a shout out to Chris, the maintenance man, because I did say I would, because I rode here on my bike and the screws on my pannier came out. So I was holding my pannier bag while cycling through Leeds. And I, and I told Chris, <laughs> Chris went, I'll sort that for you, mate. And I said, listen, if you can find some screws for that, I'll give you a shout out on the show. He went and found some screws, so we're good. That is awesome, isn't it? Thank you, Chris, here at Crown House. Yeah. I'm going to send him a link to the show. He did say he wanted a link. Right. He'll listen to it. Yeah, exactly. He'll listen to it. So today, we've got a couple of things to talk about here on Book Club. The first thing we want to talk about is the death of the qualified sales leader by Jim McMahon. Yeah, well, I said to Johnny, let's we do part three. He went, what's the point? It's boring. It bored me and it'll bore people listening to it. What's it called? Qualified sales leader. He's not a qualified author. I think that, in summary, is the book. Yeah. He's, He's clearly an excellent sales leader. He's got a supreme track record. And some of the stuff in that book was excellent. Top guy, Jim McMahon. Yeah. Top, top, top guy. I mean, literally, show me somebody who's had a better career. Yeah, absolutely. It's as good as you've ever seen. And there are some nuggets of wisdom in the book, but I read the third part, and frankly, listeners, darling audience, I was bored out of my tiny fucking mind. So uh, we realised if I'm bored, and Mike and I have been talking about this recently, if I'm bored reading a book, if Mike's bored reading a book, and we, we've got a We've new, read quite a few now as well. Yeah, and we've read a lot. I just thought, you guys are going to be bored listening to us talking about a book that we found boring, so we are not doing a part three on The Qualified Well, that was part leader. three. Is that a show? Can I go? <laughs> That's it. Let's go home. It's <laughs> Friday afternoon. Let's get out of here. Now, the next thing I want to cover with you, Mike, is I want to bounce something around with you on the show today. Before we jump into the next book, what I want to bounce around with you is a new 50-page rule. Okay. So this is the rule. I was thinking about this at five o'clock this morning when I was catching up with uh, the Antony Reno book. And what I'm thinking is we pick up a book, it gets a 50... It's like me and Mrs. Graham, we have what we call the 10-minute rule with TV. So we'll put... Pieces of her on Netflix. Correct. Four into that. Superb. So we'll put a show on on Netflix and it has 10 minutes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And we literally, we look at our watches and go, it's 10 past eight. If at 20 past eight, I'm not fished in, it's getting turned off. If we're looking at our phones within 10 minutes, it's getting turned off. And I think what we're going to do from here on in is we're going to start books. And if in 50 pages, we think it's rubbish, it's getting binned. I mean, I mean, I think we'd have binned quite a few of the books that we've read yeah, we thus will. far. Yeah, we will. Are they going to get the inward stamp of sales approval? Uh, we, it, would they get 50 pages and we'll talk about them on the show. We'll explain why we've binned it at that point. We might read a bit more, but there's a new 50 page rule. If we're not into it within 50 pages, it gets 10 minutes on the show and then it gets canned and we move to the next book until one keeps us going after 50 pages. I'm in, but I, I feel like we're sort of starting to run out of sales books, dare I say it. Nah, there's loads. I've seen some geezer on LinkedIn today. Mark Engels just written one. Right. Good software salesman, written a book. I'm sure it's somewhat self-aggrandizing in the same way that my book on recruitment is. Um, but hey, they're out there. Fine. And we don't have to always cover sales books, we'll cover business books, strategy books, whatever. But I think we should just say, right, from here on in, you've got 50 pages to capture our imagination and get us 
thinking about is tell this going to add- tell us something we've not heard before as well because yes. a lot of it is a reinvention of different things i think we've been a little bit too kind to a few authors on the show because they've said they'd come on the show yeah and actually we need to be a little bit less kind and it needs to be a little bit more listen tell us something we don't know tell our audience something we don't know right Fish is in but now we're on with Antony Arino and given I've read the whole book Anthony and, get- it, and he's coming on the show. <laughs> Ant- Anthony gets the love. He, well, he passes the 50-page mark to, by default. To be fair, he passes it by default. And to be fair, let's introduce this next book. It's Elite Sales Strategies. It's the new one from Anthony Anarino. We know Anthony. He is a friend of the show, is he not? He, he definitely is. He was is, yeah. one of our first guests on Book Club, best part of 100 shows ago. And what I do know about Anthony is he is... He's got uh, a great reputation and deservedly so. He's got a great so. reputation. Deservedly so, I think. He has a great personal brand. He is well respected as a sales author. And actually, he's good crack, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I completely so agree. So I'm looking forward to having him on the show. Let's give our listeners the headlines, Pricey. What's Elite Sales Strategies about? Do you know, this is something that I've been talking about with consultants that have worked for us for 20 years, which is what happens is uh, when they start working for us, I draw two stick men on a page and I draw one stick man that's taller than another. Yes. And I say, you've either got to be the tall stick man or the little stick man, and currently you sound like a little stick man, and because you sound like a little stick man, that's why you're getting binned by a big stick man. Yes. Now, actually, when you've done the job a long time, which we have, without wishing to sound arrogant, I know I know more about the people I'm calling, irrespective of how successful they are than sales recruitment. So I always go on the phone as the big stick man. That's always been in my mind. And actually, what Anarino has done here is, he, maybe he's read my mind, but he's actually put that into a book and then he's explained how it works in more detail. I mean, that really is the summary of the book. And I think if you're thinking about those two stickmen on a page, maybe that should have been his cover. I think that's a very good mindset uh, for salespeople to be in, to have what he's going to talk about being one-up. And that yes. one-up is like the stickmen on the page, I think. Yeah, and I think the only reason he hasn't talked about stickmen like that is he would deem that combative. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, I agree with that. But it's so true. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 it's interesting because... a. L- we read the Oren Claff book. Which one was that? Pitch Anything, where he talks about power frames. Yes. I mean, I didn't like that particularly, but, but this whole some of it resonated. About, this whole book is about situational power framing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a, it's a deeper treatise of that situational power frame that Oren Claff talks about, where he covers the whole concept of, can you remember he talks about the golf pro, the mechanic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All those people that we trust, the hairdresser, that they're all situationally powerful, aren't they? And what Anthony really goes a bit deeper in in this book, I think, is that situational power frame, and he gives you a greater element of how to create that. How to create. That's what I always like about Anarino's books. They are a bit of a manual. bit more. bit M- more. More so. of a manual. That's interesting in the, in the preface, or preface, as I'm sure he would say, is And this is a bit, and I thought, just read past it. I'm all too familiar with the high-pressure, hard-sell tactics of the past, and I have seen a number of colleagues train salespeople to do whatever it takes to manipulate their prospects. It's interesting, a lot of people in, you know, sort of post-2010 don't, you know, try and get away from high-pressure, hard-sell tactics. I sort of think there's a place for them, really. I'll tell you something, Mike. I'm on the opening page of the book on the foreword, in answer to your point. And at the top of the opening page I have written here, have we thrown out the baby with the bathwater in the name of being professional and ethical? Well, the, the, not professional, because professional is hitting your target. Well, that's a whole other conversation. Yes, I think 
uh, you know my theory on this, uh, it's winning pay and losing pay. You know, in 1895, Rugby League voted to break away from and form the Northern Union because the players wanted paying for Brocken time where they weren't down the pit and they wanted winning and losing pay. And that's professional sport. That was the birth of real professional rugby in this country. I think salesmen, they get paid winning and losing pay. Basic salary, losing pay. Commission, winning pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and professional is winning games. Or trying your hardest to win. Yes. End of. And a lot of people, I think, what I was concerned, I was reading a lot of stuff on LinkedIn recently. I mean, we're going off on a tangent very early. I was reading some stuff on LinkedIn recently where there's, I, I made a point, which is people are prissy. This sort of they are, prissy, yeah. false correctness. Even in authors like Anthony, that, that they're so, I think everybody's so nervous of sounding a little bit incorrect. The only one that didn't was The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, Belfort. Yeah. He's the only one who's unashamed. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, this element of shame. Brené Brown had had a field day with the sales profession. There's this sort of whole shame thing going on. Anyway, we ought to get into the book. So foreword by a guy called Charlie Green. Never heard of Charlie Green. Uh, <laughs> And what he talks about, Charlie Green, he's mentioning certain tensions at work in sales and that these are everlasting and immutable. No methodology or approach will ever transcend. And then he talks about, and I wrote at the top, are we getting a rehash of the Oren Claff book? No, we're not. We're getting a deep, as we get into it, we realise we're getting a deeper treatise. And he points out here, if all you do is win sales competitions with your customers, you'll eventually be out of a job. No one likes someone who's solely in it for themselves. And such people get found out pretty quickly. Really? Do they? They get jobs and they earn loads of commission is what happens to them. Yeah. Really? I'm going to go, th- I'm just, let's do the quote again. If all you do is win sales competitions with your customers, you'll eventually be out of a job. What? No one likes someone who is solely in it for themselves and such people get found out pretty quickly. I think that is one of the dumbest things I've ever read in a book since we started doing this show. Do come on the show though, Anthony. I don't care if he doesn't. Uh, genuinely, I think it's one of the most stupid comments I've ever seen. What, if all you do is win sales competition with your customers, you'll eventually be out of a job? I just don't agree. Yes, there is a moral theory of, yeah, it's all about the customer. Da, 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 da. If you win sales time and time and time and time again, and your customers buy a few, and you earn loads of commission, you won't be out of a job. If you don't sell stuff, you might be out of a job. Well, you definitely will, yeah. Um, well, currently you won't because the market's so hot, it's so nuts that actually you could be completely useless and still probably get well, 20 pay rise. Plenty of useless people are getting jobs, aren't they? Yeah, but I, I just genuinely, comfortably one of the dumbest things I've ever read in any book ever in my whole life, ever. Right, let's move on from it. Right. And then he talks about navigating the tensions inherent in human relationships. It's pretty much the same way to navigate tensions inherent in sales. In fact, they're the same tensions. Great point. And then we're on to the preface. Uh, the whole concept. It, it defines the one-up position here. I did. I did uh, underline his, his definition. And he the technique by... of gaining a feeling of superiority over another person. Yeah, and what he starts. That's by what is, the Oxford English Dictionary will tell you. He gives a little allegory of being near base camp and having altitude sickness, and the Sherpa saying, "Throw the medicine away; it's not working." And, and, the, and the, the Sherpa, Sherpa had situational intelligence. The was Sherpa right. was a trusted advisor knew more than the doctors because he, he was a real expert in the in the space. And and in reality, what the book's about is about us being the Sherpa of the mountain because we've been up the mountain much more than our customers have been and therefore we're the Sherpas. And I liked that. It was a good metaphor. 
Okay. Good. Have I understood that right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And then we get a little bit deeper. And then he's talking about the ethics of the one-up oh, sale. I underline the same bit. What have you got? Without a strong ethical underpinning, the powerful strategies and tactics you'll find in this book could easily harm your results. I don't think they'll harm your results. No, I think... I, just... I, I think they might harm your friendliness or how much you're liked by the um, uh, by the prospect. Well, they're not going to harm your results, are they? I just think that that whole paragraph is a self-preservatory caveat for the millennial sales professional. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I know. Yeah, absolutely right. It's just a self-preservatory caveat for the zeitgeist of our current selling environment. And I get it. You know, it's great and everything, but stop worrying about it. Yes, be professional. Yes, be ethical. Don't be an arsehole. But don't rip let, people off. Don't rip people off. Do the right thing. But we, we, I think we worry far too much about it now. Well, it's interesting. There was a, a guy, uh, I'm not going to say his name, who uh, who we placed, I think you placed him. In fact, you did place him about 10 years ago with a little company that got sold in the integration space. And he right. said to you the other day, you really put a lot of pressure on me to take that job, but it's been one of the best things that happened to me. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And you were right. I can I remember what happened. He was resigning to his boss and you described his and his boss's relationship has been a toxic relationship. Now, I think at the time that would have uh, upset him and that's probably what upset him. But you were right because you were from the outside and looking in. I put in. that guy under a lot of pressure. And 10 years on, one of the first things he said to me was, thank you so much. You're yeah. so right. Exactly. So we have to be careful with this ethics thing because actually... It can go, it's going to go too far, it isn't an, it? You could say it was unethical for me to have put him under massive pressure, but I knew I was right. Yeah, yeah. And 10 years on, he's turned around to me and said, it was amazing, I've earned loads of money, I've bought a big house, da 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 da, da. They sold the company. Yeah, yeah, and he got and he, had he made a lot of money out of the sale of the company. Okay, so he says, the single reason you need to be one-up is so you can help your contacts be one-up in their business. No, not really. The single reason you need to be one-up is so you can win deals. And you can win deals because you help, and it's important to help, but it's just not the throw. Let's just go off. Uh, we'll go, you can pick that through every new sales book. Yeah, absolutely. And then he, he does mention the word uh, trusted advisor, which I've written here is my least favourite phrase in these sales. I'll tell you why it's your least favourite phrase is because so many people don't know what it is. People yeah. class themselves. There are trusted advisors. Yes. You know, what you, there's one particular big software company big cloud and services company that I placed 11 people with last year, when that chief exec's got a thing around sales, he phones up, he goes, listen, Mike, what do you reckon I should do? You're a trusted advisor. I am actually his trusted advisor. He phones me Correct. about sales recruitment. Correct. But I think a lot of people misunderstand what the word trusted advisor really means. They just mean creepy. I think, you know, so so like we were looking at uh, settees this weekend because we've got an extension that I showed you. Well, you'll the, need an L-shaped thing for that room, won't you? I want you? that so I can sit on my uh, on my settee in my pants and watch Formula One and drink in Stella. That's a lifelong dream. Yeah, right. But point being is... What's wrong with that? The point being is these salespeople, I think they would have considered themselves as trusted advisor of my sofa purchase. Yes. They weren't. I just wanted to know what colour it came in. Yes. And there's a real difference there. And that's your problem with the phrase trusted advisor. Yeah, it is. It, everybody's a trusted advisor. Not many people are, really. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Okay. Um, and then he says, I, and then he gives like a little inventory on being one down. Really good. Yeah, Not, I like this. I, I underlined a lot of this, actually. And, and um, this is where I think Anthony's great, is because he gives you stuff to work with. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. 100%. He does that in every book. I do like that. Actual real stuff where you could create a little checklist, couldn't you? You could create a form now where, 
you know, when I first started in my first sales job at, at Parcel Force, we used to have these things called green sheets yeah, yeah. that you had to fill in before you walked into a sales meeting with a customer. So you'd go on the road and you'd go out to see a customer, you'd fill in a green sheet. Yeah, yeah. And the green sheet would be this, it was sort of like an old Millerheimer blue sheet, but it was slightly adapted. An information collection sheet. Yeah, of things you do and things you don't know about the customer. And, and you could put this on a little green sheet. Do I have relevant knowledge? Do I recognise the factors for decisions? Do I have depth of understanding? Am I learning from experiences? Is my sales approach up to date? Do I have a lack of confidence? And he makes some really great points here about things that make people one down. Uh, it's not really relevant to book, but I highlighted one bit. He goes, outdated sales approach. Today, how you sell is more important to your success than what you sell. I am actually going yeah. to take a picture of that and I'm going to send it to all my clients who sell low code that say they need a low code salesperson. Or everybody that says AI. That says Do you agree with that? Do I agree with that? What, how you sell is more important than what you sell? Uh, what I say to clients is, if it was me, I wouldn't talk about technology. I'd talk about the sales process that somebody goes through, and I'd hire somebody that has the same sales process. So I think the same sales process selling to the same personas is more important than what you sell. I really think that's the, that's the key of it. individual success, do you think how a person sells is more important than what they sell? Yes. Yes, 100%. Absolutely 100%. Because I know how I sell to my clients... So I've been making some canvas calls. I told you earlier about this week and uh, this guy goes, I've read your email. And I went, I know you've read my email. You've read it three times. Are you an active campaign? That's why I'm calling you. Are you interested? Now, I don't think he could sell in that way to his prospects, could he? No. So my sales approach wouldn't suit his environment, but it no. would suit a different one. I think it depends on what you sell. What we sell could be easily perceived as commodity and therefore how we sell... Well, people try and put us in commodity corner, don't they? Correct. Therefore, how we sell is incredibly important. But if you sell software for market-leading vendor X that's in the top right corner of the Gartner Magic quadrant, is how you sell that important? Uh, it's a good point. Um, There's almost like a little continuum, isn't there? A little four-way yeah, yeah, four box. It's a fair comment. I've got to take you on because we talk about it forever. So we've got here, desperation for a deal. This is what puts you one down. Yeah. The greater your need to create or win a deal, the easier it is for your client to recognise you or one down. He hasn't put commission breath, but I mean, that's what he's referring to. Of course it is. That puts you one down. Of course down. it is. That always surprises me how so many of the vendors, you know, it's, it's Oracle's financial year end this month, I think. Pretty sure it is in May. And obviously, I've never worked for Oracle. I don't recruit for Oracle. I don't know. But I can imagine in an American software company, if I was purchasing Oracle software, I'd be waiting until now. Yep. 100%. Yep. There's going to be commission breath everywhere in there, isn't there? And that's putting them one down. Yeah, it is. And then it, it, he's got a couple of others here. Things like fear of your client. You know, people are scared of customers, I think. some There's a point where you realise, as a salesperson, that they all shit and that, you stop caring about what they think. You know, I placed a guy who was an ex-SAS soldier or commando, something mega in the British Army, and he got shot in the arm by a pirate, proper pirate, right. in the African what, Sea. Like off the coast of Africa yeah, somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. He said he was miles away. This guy just randomly shot a gun. He didn't duck or anything. And the guy hit him. And, uh, and we got talking about new business canvassing, and he went, Mike, somebody shot me in the arm. Yeah, I've been shot. <laughs> I've been I, shot. I don't care. Somebody shot there me. Is, isn't there? Whether you've been shot or whether you've been metaphorically and emotionally shot enough by enough customers. You see a lot of recruitment. If they make it through a year, they make it long. Yeah, it just makes people hard. But it's not that. You just become, it's like it's like boxing, isn't it? You get, first you time get you used get, to getting hit. Yeah, it's a conditioned response, isn't it? Yeah. You just get good at not being hurt. I also think this is important. Compliance at all costs. 
too many salespeople are too compliant at all costs. At too some, customer focused. At some point, you've got to turn around to a client and say, no, you're wrong. That's yes, the wrong and, thing and, to and do. And you know, this is my pet thing. My pet thing is this whole obsession about the customer's right and the customer's this and the customer's that. I don't buy it. If you said to me, what's my number one differentiator as a salesperson, it's actually the fact that uh, I, I'm very disagreeable with customers, me. I'm really disagreeable with my customers. I, I, tell, I tell the customers the truth from my opinion. Yeah. And if you don't like it, I've done sales group for 22 years. I never, ever, ever tell a customer what they want to hear. Nope. What's the point? It's interesting. You've got one at the minute where you've said to the client, to the client don't offer her a job. <laughs> Obviously, I've no doubt at all he's trying to offer her a job right now. And even if he hires her, she'll leave. And, and then, then you're going to blame. No, I won't. Then he'll say to me, bloody hell, Johnny, you were emphatic that she shouldn't have taken that job. We shouldn't have hired her. It's my introduction. It'd suit me if they hire her. We'll get yeah. a fee. It's mad. I've had it before quite a few times where I've said, don't take that job. Don't take it. When, it, when I've introduced him them, were, I don't, now I've got to know her. I don't like her. She's a nightmare waiting to happen. Let's move on. And he's going to hire her? I think they're going to try and hire her because she played pro sport. And what's interesting is the CEO has made a mental lazy shortcut between the fact that she played pro sport and therefore she must be brilliant. Yeah, you do get that a lot. A ridiculous lazy shortcut. Anyway, and then uh, he says, no one wants a one down partner. Yes, I underline the same bit. Even in, before you meet, your contacts will measure how valuable you are to them personally yeah. and professionally. That's very, very true. This is a really interesting thing that he mentions. For, he gives an example here. For example, a salesperson who starts a cold call with, do you have 27 seconds? I, I read what, a lot. What do you think of that as a oh, tactic? God. Because I tell well, you Firstly, I think it's incredibly disingenuous. Because I tell you who says it, you know him, the guy I'm going to join the golf club with, he's a gazillionaire. Right. And he, and he, well, he's a gazillionaire, isn't he? And yeah, he's, he's a wealthy guy, but he still makes cold calls. Well, what he said, he, well, I spoke to him the other day. So what you up to? He went, oh, I'm making cold calls. So why? He said, well, because the cold caller left. The senior sales reps, you know, they need leads and I'm not doing anything else. So I'm doing some cold calling. And I said, are you still saying, have you got 20 seconds? He said, yeah, mate. Yeah, still saying it. He says it. I think it's nonsense. He says it it's and he's rich. Ha- it's too hat doffy for me. Completely agree. I'd never say it. And maybe that's just the way that I build my own personal power. Or maybe frame. it's who he sells to. Yes. We, we, you know, we sell to alphas, alpha males, alpha females. So I, you can't correct. say that. To no, them. you have to come in in a position of personal belief in your own authority. You have to come at the same level is what yeah. you have. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that's a really interesting thought about the whole concept of one up is it must divide by buying type. Must do. Cause lawyers, you know, you've sold to lawyers, right? If you upset the one up status from the start, you're going to turn them off to you. I think. Oh yeah, particularly. I mean, when we sold to, to law firms, there's a part in the relationship where where they're cleverer than you. At the start, they they're all they always think they're cleverer than you. And they, they might Until, be better educated. No, but it used to be fun because you know you'd go in and you'd go right. How do you work out how much the fee is? And they'd go, I, I weigh the file in my hand, <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be like, right, okay. And over a period of time, you would then start to wrestle the power away from them. You know, once you start, if you were good, you could start getting them thinking about lost minutes, lost time units. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're sat there thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm losing thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of just, I'm, I'm throwing the supermarket. Well, what Anarino would, would say, you started one down and finished one up. Yes. By the end of the meeting, usually you'd be one up. I put, I like what I put here, he said, like it or not, sales success is individual, not situational. Yeah. Do you agree with it? that? Because well, the it, Sherpa was situationally successful. Yeah, my golf coach is situationally successful. He could sell me 
anything. I mean, you know, we've talked about it today, how desperate I am to get good at golf. You could sell me anything, honestly. And that's situational power, isn't it? Yeah. Could he go and sell recruitment services for Rimwood? No. No, but he could sell. I'll tell you what, you need new sticks, right? Yeah, I'll go and get some, yeah. You need a new driver, yeah, right, yeah, I'll go, right, where do I go? Who, who, who's, the be- who's the best driver fitter who's, in England? Who should I buy it off? Yeah, literally. Your friend, what, your wife? I should buy it off your wife? Literally, I'm like a blind, dumb, stupid, drugged idiot. I, I, I like this, but a meeting of equals, in an important sense, you and your client are equal. I think in every sense. All the time. If you're not equal, and go find someone else. That, if you don't believe that, and if you can't, I always used to say to people when we were training them, you have to think that you are the CEO of your desk. Yeah. You're the CEO. Uh, you know, you'd get, we'd, we'd get young account handlers coming in and and they'd be ringing up these sales directors who put the phone down on them and they'd have this look of fear. Yeah, completely. The proper look of fear. Can you remember, Steve Griffith used to say, they say, they come seven foot tall and they end up four foot tall. Yeah, completely. You know, he'd say, look at him now, he looks like a little man. Yeah. Sat yeah. at his desk and Steve would laugh. Hee <laughs> Like that, he'd go, and he looks like a little man, Johnny. They've broken this one. Yeah. But the clients would break them. But the ones that would make it, and this was a, this is a very interesting socio-demographic thing, and that we've seen this time and time again, and maybe this is a good one to talk to the audience and maybe we'll make some micro content out of this. The ones that often made it were often the arrogant public schoolboys who never, ever, ever thought that Completely agree. the customers were better than them. Completely agree. The public school, I mean, your daughter went to public school, mine doesn't. Yeah. The public- if you put my daughter in the job, she'd, she'd be like, what do you mean you think you're better than me? You could put your daughter with Jim McMahon. And she'd say, hello, Jim. Hey, Jim. Well, she did it with Sir Geoffrey Boycott at the golf club. Did she? Yes. Uh, 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 who uh, she calls Jeff and uh, everybody <laughs> else calls Sir Geoffrey. Right. But she was just like, yeah, whatever, cricket, whatever. See, part of it is also, you know, nature and na- confidence. Nature and nurture. See, if you take my daughter, she isn't personally confident, but she's not personally unconfident. She's not fearful. She, she just don't care. Just whatever. Who are you? So it's an interesting thing, this concept of the one upness, because actually I think there's a socio demographic part of it. Yes, I do agree uh, with that. Particularly in our industry, because uh, there, there uh, are socio demographics of the decision quite, makers. I mean, quite quite wrongly, our industry is dominated by white male. Middle class men, yes, sadly, and it is. Yes, sadly, it's not. It's not, not diverse, diverse enough. Enough by far. It's not diverse enough. And I've always said to the cli- it's getting better. I clients have always said to me, "Why is that, Mike? Because you know, irrespective of your background, irrespective of your sex, irrespective of your gender orientation, it's the numbers that count." Yes, sales but, is- but I think it's a lifetime, and it's a social conversation, really, isn't it? But yeah. it's a lifetime. Sales is meant to be the ultimate... It's the ultimate meritocracy. It should be the ultimate meritocracy. It should be the ultimate environment in which diversity can yeah. rule. Physical wellness doesn't come into it. You could be in a yeah. wheelchair, you could yeah. be 100 metres in 12 be. seconds. But actually, in terms of one-upness that he's talking about in the book, actually, yeah, it's less diverse and there is a subtle under-element. It'd be really interesting to talk to Anthony about this. There's an element, and I think in America it probably exists less. But we quite have, probably, I don't know, but yeah, quite probably. We have much more subtle social hierarchies in the UK. Well, the class system still exists, doesn't it? It's just more thinly veiled. Yeah. But and so, more anyway, that's it. it's not what it is. He's put here, being one-up isn't about conflict, trickery or dominance. On the contrary, it's about creating an obligation to serve your clients by becoming the kind of salesperson they need. That's the key bit. By becoming the kind of salesperson they need. 
one with experience, expertise to provide them with good counsel, advice and recommendations. Now, actually, you know, what is our strapline? Our strapline is insight. Benefit of insight, the ability to deliver. Yeah, no, and that insight key is word here. And that's really what he's talking about a lot is about, you know, having insight. And then we're on to chapter one, the modern sales approach. We've only got chapter one, Johnny. We're uh, 40 minutes in. Well, we might make a few shows out of this one because actually we're finding it marginally interesting. Oh, it is interesting. Yeah, it's good. It's good, isn't it? Um, what page are you on? I'm on page 17. I'm on 9%, chapter one. That's, hold on, the modern sales approach, and then there's a blank page. I love a good blank page in a book to pad it out, to add extra pages, so you think the book's more rich than it actually is. I, I, I'm using my phone, actually. I've got to say, um, Amazon, I don't know who runs Kindle for Amazon, done a great job. Love it. Very, very we good. We were saying before the show, weren't we, I think the whisper sync thing between Audible and Kindle. I think it's one of mankind's finest achievements. It's up there with the moon landings for me. It's probably more useful. Yes, much more useful than the moon landings. So, so, so here, we, he, he's making reference to the fact that the sales landscape has changed and the freedom yes. of information. Yes, he uh, is. And he's giving a real introduction into how, he's talking about the old days, legacy laggard, the old-fashioned salesperson. And do you know what? I was reading this at five o'clock this morning and I thought, do you know, he's right. That whole concept of discovery and this and that, it is a little bit tired, isn't it? And actually, the more I've thought about the book, the more I've started to like this approach as we get towards it later on in the book of starting with almost an executive briefing in the meeting of, look, this is what I think is going on in the market right now. Let me tell you what's happening. Yes, I think that's very wise. I'm going to try this. Well, let's get it right. A lot of the marketing stuff that I've been putting together, the videos. Is that? It's exactly that. It's exactly that. Rather than tell me your problems, what problems are you having with recruiting? What keeps you up at night? When I hear hear people say that now, what keeps you up at night? I think, yeah. He's saying that customers are exhausted with it. Well, he's also saying that that all the salespeople train to ask the same questions and get sick of answering them. Yes. And that a lot of the current paradigms of question them until they tell you their pain. Actually, what he's saying is no. That is yesterday. Today, you should be walking in and telling them where they're hurting. Yeah, bringing what, them a bit of value and then building on the back of it. Telling them what's going on in the world, bringing them some value, and then and that's your rapport builder. That's where you start the conversation. And I think he's bang right, actually. He's saying the modern approach is consultative, requiring much more of the salesperson. Modern contacts, stakeholders, decision makers, and decision shapers need salespeople to deliver more value. Brackets read more help. And I like that. I'm in. But I think there is a real caveat here, and he goes into the book later on. I do think this is very hard if you're, I think, as we get later into the book, he gives some ideas of approaches of how to start a session and how to start. Yes, he does. Yes. You and I have that situational authority because we're grown-ups. And by sheer experience and time served now. Time served, isn't it? Yeah, time served and effort. I've made an effort to become knowledgeable about the world. I haven't made an effort. I've just ended up being knowledgeable about it. Yeah. It's that, the, that's the difference between uh, getting golf coaching and getting a set of clubs. Yeah. You Broadly speaking, you end up in the same place. Yeah. As a result, I tend to have a lot of one-upness. I think one-upness is hard to get when you're a 27-year-old account exec in a mid-level enterprise software environment where you are running scripts off gong and working off a dialer with somebody recording your yes, calls. Yes, but, and I mean, I was going to come on to this later on in the book, actually. One of the problems with these kind of things, these books is, is, it, is you do create an employment trap. 
Ah, yes. So you look at a lot of the really, really slick, quickly growing software vendors, they hire absolute garbage and it doesn't really matter because it'll be a freemium model. Yep. Um, try before you buy, 28 days, you know, whatever it might be, but some form of freemium model. They're beautifully marketed. I mean, Monday.com, I cannot escape them on YouTube. Can't escape them. Nope. Absolutely superb marketing. marketing. Let's get it right, Mike. One of the things we didn't talk about in today's agenda was switching from Asana to Monday. Yeah. And their marketing (laughs) is so unbelievably good. But they've got it. And then they've got the product to back it up. Yeah. So why does somebody need to be one up? They don't need a talented salesperson. Their marketing's brilliant. Good enough that when we had our team meeting to discuss whether we were all happy with the project management solution we're working with, we all mentioned Monday.com. Everybody mentioned Monday. Then as an action item, I went off and started trialling it and toying with it. And then as a next action item, I'm going to recommend that we switch. And a couple of other people have trialled it and we will move. Why do they need a sales guy to come along and be one up? Their product's one up for them. Yeah, I mean, we're a small business, but even in big companies, so mate of mine, you know, the guy that was talking to that recommended it, he works for a two and a half thousand person law firm. Right. So it's a big company. I said to him, have you seen the salesperson? He said, yes, come on, give me the name. I want to look up on LinkedIn, see if they're any good and I want ahead of them because he's got the number. We don't deal with monday.com. I looked at it and thought, yeah, I'm not bothered. Looks rubbish. But that salesperson has sold that deal to that company and they're a yep. big, slick pro law firm. Yeah. And that's the point is actually a lot of what's created economic growth. And we've talked about it this morning about bringing somebody in to make calls to senior level decision makers. Well, what we've talked about is creating marketing and collateral and content that does the one-upness bit for that individual. Yeah, hit the nail. That's what I was going to say. So actually, I think in reference to his, specifically his chapter about how the software market's changed, it has changed. But I think currently the software market puts the salespeople in one-up before they walk through the door. In a lot of environments, particularly that sort of mid-market low barrier to entry SaaS environment. Yeah, I think I think it creates its own one up. I'm sure if you're buying... If you buy an SAP that's it, yes. super complicated, I don't know if it is, but everyone says it is, so I guess I'll just go with it. I think you've probably got the one up. I'd be interested to know. I'd love to speak to a few people that are selling that level of product because I reckon if you've got a couple of really heavyweight ERP guys in now, they'd say, well, the thing is when you go and see the customers, they're on their 10th ERP system. Yeah, they're probably more, they're probably more you know, sophisticated. If you speak, if you speak yeah, to yeah. a 50-year-old CIO, most of them are on their 10th ERP system. They probably know more about ERP than the sales guys that are there. Yeah, that's very true. It must be unbelievably difficult to find a leverage element of one-upness that creates and delivers value that the customer doesn't know anything about in that level. Mm, agreed. Here we are on 11%. As the one-up person best positioned to guide the one-down client to the better results they need, you must lead them. Say that again. As the one-up person best positioned to guide the one-down client to the better results they need, you must lead them. Yeah, I get Now, that. I think there's a point there, which is lead versus manipulate. And I think that's going to be interesting. I've highlighted that in red to talk to Anthony about. But you know my view. I think that it's okay in a way to be a little bit manipulative. Yes, I know you've said that many times. I mean, what I'm not in for is conning people and being a fraudster and a shuckster. I think that's awful. But you get paid to manipulate people. That's a long conversation, that, Johnny. Um, There is no way that I was especially good at my work. My success was due to work ethic and my ability to suffer without complaint. Do you know what page you're on here? Uh, Chapter 11. 
true confessions of a legacy salesperson. Anyway, point being is, whilst you find it, I, I think the key thing there is, there is no way I was especially good at the work. My success was due to my work ethic and my ability to suffer without complaint. I actually think they're quite good qualities for a salesperson. You know, if you get something that's got a big work ethic and actually doesn't complain when they lose, that's a good start for a salesperson, I think. And he was a bit derisory about it here. Yeah, some guys, that's how some guys become successful. Mm, mm, we mm. were talking about somebody we know who's got his own business now and he always says, it used to work for me and he often says, you know, you taught me one trick, but it's a pretty good trick. He is a hardcore cold caller. He's got a successful company as a result of that now. Yes. And he, he would say to you, no, nah, I'm not the smartest guy on earth. No, nah, I'm not the best salesman, but I'll just out dial anybody and I'll get enough in the pipeline that I'll always make a good living. Well, we've had this conversation many times, haven't we, about pipeline? Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's it and all about it. You know what? To be fair, there's a line in the Jim McMahon book, going back to it, that says where he talks about yeah. a key XPTC colleague who mentions a fat pipeline trumps all of the problems. Quite right. Solves all sales problems. And he said that he, could, he never, ever missed the target. It, there's a, he mentions it. The guy never missed target because he just always, he was obsessed with activity, ran his team on activity. Well, come on, Johnny. We're, we're, team always won. Quite, quite often you'll be saying, Mike, what are you doing with this particular job? And I go, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. I'm getting another one. And then you must be sat more, there going, well, more, why? More, why more, are you doing more. that? Just pile stuff in the top and stuff comes through. Mm. And actually that, that, you know, he doesn't mention that here. No, but, but that's, actually, not the, that's not what this book's about, though, is no, it? No, but pipeline makes you one up. We haven't mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. The fat pipeline always keeps you one up with the customers. He says here, the more you comply with a process that is being driven by your contacts or their company, the more certain it is that you're one down. By the way, the one-up approach to an RFP would start with a call to the person who sent you it to explain there are no way you can answer their questions and still show them how companies like yours help with win better results. You're still on chapter one here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I've mentioned this before. I've got this mate who's a mega gazillionaire. And I said to him, you know, he's just got loads of cash. I said, you know, where'd you get your business from? Uh, and he's in the building industry. He said, yeah, I just respond to tenders. Right. And I just nice. got, and I just got FAB in my mind. I said, who writes the tenders? You know, are you worried about other contractors? He said, no, not really, because I win plenty of them. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Like he's got more watches than a Swiss banker, this guy. All he does is reply to tenders. I just reply to tenders, mate. Right. <laughs> I mean, Amazing. he sort of throws it all out the window, really, doesn't it? That is amazing, isn't it? Because I guess if you're in a good enough company and you reply to a good enough, and you reply to enough tenders, you're going to win. His brand must be good. No. And he's getting invited to the tenders. No, no, no. He finds them. Oh, he finds them on the websites and just downloads them and applies, and in the end, he wins a few. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Go, I don't know where you are because uh, we're I'm at the beginning the... of chapter two. Right. Do you want me to go to chapter two then? Yeah. Go on then, Johnny. I'll, I'll catch you up in a minute. The one-up sales conversation is your only vehicle for value creation. So he gets a bit deeper in chapter two, doesn't he? Yes. There's a quote here. It says, a single conversation across the table with a wise man is better than 10 years mere study of books. I actually take the 10 years of books. But anyway, your approach to professional selling must evolve as you work to help your clients improve their results. And I think that's the point is he's talking about an evolution, not a revolution here. And what he's saying is that people have got to start evolving into thinking this little bit more about what they deliver. And I think we are all following this little bit of, yeah, I'll go in, yeah, discovery, discovery. And it's all a bit cheesy and the customers are a bit exhausted with it. Um, he says, the discovery call has been fully and completely commoditized. I, I noted that. I put by the SaaS industry. Yeah. I put, really? Or are people just shit at doing it and our company's not spending and thinking about sales training? I think the modern company, their CEO sat there with a thought process that is, 
Don't get caught in an employment trap. You know, what's yeah, the... We t- yeah, just to explain what we define the talent trap is, Mike. Yes, well, the talent trap is where you're beholden to your employees, your salespeople, because all of the skill of the sale lies in their head. Yeah. The whole concept of the smart companies, if you spoke to the, the investors that back them, there's a thread which is hire talented people, but don't let any of those talented people be so talented that their departure would hurt this company. Correct. And you and I have always the, the, the minute to it. you're counter offering, if you, if you're a sales lead listening to this, the minute you're getting into counter offering, you need to look at your business process. Yeah, you need to look long and very, very, very hard at yourself. There's and the minute something- you accept a counter offer, you've got to completely understand that you work in a business that's badly geared and badly set up. Yep, completely. If you're counter offering a salesman to stay, it's because your business model isn't right. Correct. You shouldn't End be of- able to let anybody leave. Yeah. The, your business model isn't working. Your marketing isn't working. Let's get working. right, Johnny. We've spent your you know a long time good. turning inward round to being a point at which that if people leave, we can say, I've really enjoyed working with you. You're yeah. a good person. Good luck. You're a great employee. All the best. You Next. Know, yeah, correct. And that's not because we don't love our employees. We do. We we're, love ve- them, yeah. we're very appreciative of the hard work of some of the people that have joined us recently. That we've got. A, I think this is the best team we've ever had. Completely agree. I think Charlotte's great. Alex absolutely got marketing ticking. I absolutely love this team. I I find them energising. But if one of them decided to leave tomorrow, the business is designed in such a way that we could stand that. Yes. Whereas you and I both know if you're relying on talent, and this is the point, this whole concept of the salesman as talent. It's the the wrong way. Ironically, it's great for us because most companies focus on the salesman as talent. But the really, 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 really successful ones, the ones that IPO for billions, they don't. Nope, they don't. And I wrote a couple of points here, which is, you know, we talk, I'm talking about sales training now, and this will be a really interesting one with Anthony, because Anthony sells sales training. Yes. But we're at a really interesting inflection point here, because the salaries are getting so high in our industry. Should companies really be training people to how to do great discovery? Do you know? £100,000 base, should I be buying you training? So, I, so I've got this client at the minute to pay 160 base. And I said to the guy, I said, come on, 160 base, what do you want? And he said, I just want something to my target, Mike. And I said, did they get any BDR support? He laughed and he went, Mike, I paid him 160 grand basic. Right. He said they could take 40 of it and hire their own BDR. I said, would you let them do that? He said, let them do whatever they want. Just bring me a number. They can go and hire a marketing agency. And then we got this topic of, of LinkedIn accounts, actually. So do you give them a LinkedIn Navigator account? But Mike, I'm paying 160k basic. I said, what marketing support is there? He said, Mike. And it's true though, isn't it? There comes a point at which I'm paying you 100,000 pounds, 30 grand more than a yeah. GP. And I, then, what, and then I, what you're saying is, oh, I want, you, I want some training. I want some training. Really? Go and get some then. <laughs> you know, I understand it. It's just a little bit like football, isn't it? Do you think Cristiano Ronaldo turns around to people and says, can you just teach me how to be a better player? No, what does he really want? He wants a coach. You know, do you think Rory McIlroy wants somebody to teach him how to be a better player? No, he just wants somebody to have a look at his swing. Well, the point is... Every who, now and then... Uh, well, to be fair, actually, Rory McIlroy pays Bob Rotella on a retainer. That's the point. But who provides Rory McIlroy's training? It's not the Rory PGA Mac- Tour of America. Rory McIlroy's pocket. Correct. Rory McIlroy goes out and he hires Dr. Bob Rotella to be his personal mind coach. Because he can't work out why he can't win any majors anymore. But come on, Rory, because I got him at 14 to 1 and he shot five under last night. Come on, Rory. Come on, anyway. How to command your contact's attention. Uh, he, he, I quite like this. I quite like this. He, Where he, are you here? Uh, how to command your contact's attention. Let me find that. 
You can find that. Uh, before we do that, he's made a point here. You, the salesperson of the value proposition. Oh, I underlined that. I just figured I wrote, you were taking too long on the chapter. I wrote, meh, don't agree. Uh, where are we? How to command your contact's attention. I thought this was quite interesting in terms of pivoting the conversation and getting into being different to the to the way your competitors pitch it. I've, I've highlighted it in red because I want to talk to him about it when we come on the show. Yes. Because I don't necessarily agree with the whole thing he's written here. Really. Well, he, he can't, what he's basically saying is you don't go in oh. and build rapport. You don't go in and talk about football. You don't go in and do a little bit of social prefacing. You walk in and you go, hey, you okay? Yeah, great. Okay. Here's what I want to talk to you about today. I've been doing some research into your industry and this is what I believe is going on right now. Da, 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 da. Interest rates are high. Supply and demand is slow. At the moment, you probably have got, I would imagine you've probably got problems shipping product to customers because of the uh, demand issue. I've noticed that there's batteries in your product, so you're probably having a real nightmare getting products out the door. Da, 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 da. Therefore, these are probably some of the issues I think you've got internally. And therefore, I think we can probably do something with you on that. What he's saying is you don't go in and ask them what their pains are. You go in and you tell them. And you open up with a big executive briefing that says, these are your problems. Ideally problems they haven't even thought about the ones that they're having. You then talk about how you've been solving some of those elsewhere. Da, 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 da. And then at that point, that's your rapport building. That's kind of what he's alluding to, isn't it? Have I got that? Yeah, I mean, I just stopped listening after five minutes because you got it right, 100%. Yeah. But, <laughs> but what's interesting is so I'm doing a lot of work with a client that's recruiting Holland at the minute. Surely, Grudy. But I think, thanks for casual racism. That is my, my xenophobia. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, what's interesting is, is when you speak to people to whom English is a second language, there's very little social interaction. Much less. I've been working it, with, with a few guys in the Netherlands. I'm working with a, few, a couple of guys who are doing a role at the minute uh, in DAC. And you know when English is second language, you don't have that bit of banter? It's all just so much easier. I mean, the Dutch are much more transactional anyway, culturally. Mm. Uh, the point is he's saying things to stop doing, starting with wires, personal rapport building, commoditized discovery. I like that phrase, commoditized discovery. I hate the personal rapport building that most of the candidates that we deal with. Yeah. I mean, we've covered it so many times, but that whole, particularly lower level candidates with the whole cheesy, hey, yeah, Leeds, Leeds fan, eh? All that, yeah. No, 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 actually, I follow rugby league, a, a shit minority sport. Actually, uh, we're not, we're not going to place you. <laughs> well, that's the point, though, isn't it? You just know straight off. And it's a rapport killer with me. Leeds United. No, I hate football. How are you? Why have you asked me? Don't know who I am. You don't care about the answer. You're not going to listen to the answer. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit pedantic, but I get your point. I hate that. I was getting my car serviced, so, so it's obviously up, it's up for getting changed, whatever. And I was in the BMW garage, and that creepy rapport... Just, it, I wasn't going to buy a BMW anyway, but it really put me off. No, I think it's a Tesla boy now, aren't you, Pricey? You know, I hate Teslas and I've ordered one. <laughs> like, they're so not me. That brand is not me. Yeah, but your kids like it when your car's making farting noises on the way to... Yeah, holidays. anyway, things to start doing. Establish yourself as a potential strategic partner. Yeah. I thought that was a bit glib, really. But I get his point. I, I, I thought, well, surely that just takes a long time. Yes. Compel change, provide context, differentiate the sales conversation. So what he's saying is you don't differentiate you, you don't differentiate the product, you don't differentiate your company. What you do is you create a differentiated sales experience for the customer. And I actually like that. 
I mean, that, let's be fair. That would... is a flanking manoeuvre. Yeah, right, Johnny. We're an hour into this. We're only 21% through. We obviously like the book. Yes, it's created some enthusiasm, hasn't it? I, I like that idea of differentiating the sales conversation. Completely agree, yeah. It's a flank, as you right, right it's a point flanking out, manoeuvre around everyone else. Five sales guys pitch a client. One sales guy walks in and says, not really interested if you like football. Here's where you're at. Boom. And the client sat there going, yeah. I, I had it with, the, uh, in fact, it, unbeknownst to myself, I did it with a meeting, a client a couple of years ago where I met the CEO of a software company at a trade show. And he went, listen, I'm pretty busy. You've got a couple of minutes. And I went, this is what I think is happening in your company. You've got this problem, this problem, this problem. You've churned five salespeople. They're not staying because they don't think your company's any good. They don't like And two minutes in, he went, okay, keep talking. And I was like, really? And he went, yeah. Do you want a cup of coffee? I went, yeah. And from two minutes to, from I've got to go into the next plenary session in two minutes. We were there an hour later and I took a brief. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. But it was more by good luck than good management because he put me under that much pressure time-wise. I didn't have time to try and do my pseudo-discovery. I just had to hit him with what I thought was going on. You know, And actually he was like, right, you've got my attention. Well done. You know, I deal with this client that's a big cloud services provider and I didn't want to deal with them. And there's a guy there that sells a piece of software and whatever. And he hooked me up with the sales director and the sales director goes, why don't you want to deal with me? So I tell you why I don't want to deal with you because you hire really, really crap looking people. I don't place them. I'm not interested. He laughed and he went, yeah, that's because all, that's all the other recruiters placing me. What can you do? And we had 11 placements with them last, last month. That's last amazing. That's the client. That's what I said to him. So, it, so that's the point. And this is the point Anthony's making is that differentiable as a salesperson. But a lot of that, and I've written it later on, is that, that's courage. That's big courage. That takes big gonads, that. I just don't think it does. I think that's. I, I think that's people believe. You've got time served, Mike. Yeah, I think people believe that that's the case. What, what's interesting is there's a uh, there's a salesman uh, with a with a client that I placed, and uh, the client go, listen, that guy I placed with is so not on brand. He's so not us. That's we're, been a fascinating yeah. conversation for us in the last. He, he few said, weeks. we said we're really good young looking people, and we sell to really good young looking people. He's fifty nine, smokes like a chimney, grumpy. Grumpy swears. He said, but actually what's He's happened? the star salesman. Yeah. And I said to the guy, I said, why do you think that is? He said, I'll tell you why. He said, because the client is sick of seeing the same Starbucks, Tesla, Rolex lot. Whereas this guy, scruffy, stinks of fags and he just captures their attention. There's almost a point that says, go in a clown suit to an appointment. Well, they'll just walk in and go, well, mate, you're probably struggling with this, aren't you? And the customer goes, yeah, I am. Goes, goes, you've got aren't problems you supposed that, to you? ask, aren't you supposed to talk to me about the weather and comment on... On my shoes? No, we're not mates. Correct. That's what he'd say. Yeah. No, I'm not here to be a mate. Mr. Ryan. I'm, here to, I'm here to sell you some software. This Mr. is what Ryan. I think your, where your problems are, mate. Yeah. And the customer sits there and goes, well, you've got me bang right. Right. Brilliant. You want to see some of our stuff then? Correct. And he's, and he's straight up and then he'll pursue it like a dog, like a rabid dog. Yeah. Do you think he manipulates people? Yeah. I bet he does. But they ain't firing him soon, are they? Nope. Top performer. So I'm on chapter three now. Information, yeah, insights and information disparity. You cannot be one up without maintaining information disparity, which means you possess information your client is not aware of or has not yet recognised. I think that's very accurate. I think it does beg the question, how does a salesperson move from one market to another? There's a couple of things here. Is Firstly, I saw a CV the other day, Mike, and on it the candidate had... Was it Richard had, Harrison? 
<laughs> I made that name up, listeners. <laughs> like massive GDPR breach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um, now, I saw a CV the other day, and on it, the candidate had written what books he's read. Cool. No. Why? So uncool. Because if you're writing on your CV what books you've read, you've not read enough books. Oh, I get your point. Yeah, I get your point. Do you know what I mean? I, I would need a lot of pages of print to write, to write down what books I've read. Yeah, yeah, fair comment. And I, I think that this information disparity, I think you've got a real problem out there at the moment, which is, I think if you did a poll of 100 salespeople in our industry, between the ages of 25 and 35, and said, what newspaper do you read? I think less so it's than- Instagram. I think less than 15% would say they take a proper broadsheet newspaper by a subscription that they read truly read digitally or physically. Yeah, but to be fair, I don't read newspapers. No, you get your news online. I don't, or, or, I don't, I don't bother with the news, actually. Which is fascinating. Just doesn't um, interest me. But then what you've done got is an informationally... There's lots of food, but they're all malnourished. I tell you what, the, the, so this is a good way of describing it. Actually, is so you will walk into the conversation, you know, with lots of information. Let's say, let's say it was about the news. I think there's a lot to be said for somebody who walks into the conversation with just just naturally being inquisitive. Well, there's now, two sides. Now, at no point, as he mentioned, really that inquisitive nature. But what he's saying is the customers don't want you asking questions. He's saying the customers are done with that whole inquisitive discovery. No, what he's saying is the customers are sick of the same crappy sales methodology being repeated again and again and again. What I don't think the customers are sick of is there'll be some... Uh, so I've got a guy at the minute who knows the automotive supply chain market. I know that back of his hand. Unbelievable. And when you get talking to him, he's fascinated by it. And he was saying he went to JLR and he, and he said he just literally walks around asking questions. I said, are they in relation to your software? Went, no, no, I'm just really interested. Right. But I think that natural, like I've got a mate, Tom, who he had And might... I think that can take you a long way. But, oh. I, but what I also think is, I think one, there's not a lot of that. And two, I think what you've got is an intellectually malnourished cohort. To a degree. I mean, maybe. The, let's get it right. People are reading less books than they've ever read they are reading less newspapers than they've ever read. So you've got a cohort of people that think journalism is bbc.co.uk. They think news is Sky News. And therefore, you're then sending them to hoping that they can become enterprise-level salespeople. You're sending them to meet guys with Harvard MBAs who are razor, sharp, intellectual, well-read, top guys. Proper, clever people. Mm -hmm. You know, let's get it right. If we did a survey of the top 500 CEOs, they will have MBAs from top schools. They will have gone to top universities. Well, they're in newspapers, they, won't they? Your point. They are newspaper reading, heavyweight book reading. All the people I know who are truly wealthy are just intellectual powerhouses. And it might be that they do it in different ways, but most of them are intellectual powerhouses. I'm going to, re I'm going to bring back two Because you've got your mate who's not... Who's He's a gazillionaire. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've got my other mate that I'm going to join at the golf club. You know him. I, he'd He's a reader. You reckon? I know he is. I've talked to him about loads of books. He's a reader. Well, that, that's a surprise. He, he hides his light under a bush a little He's bit, doesn't he? He's a reader. He? he reads loads and loads. Right, well, I'll stand corrected then. He picks his books, but he does read. He's a reader. 
What's interesting is my mate, who you know, the the rugby guy, different one, you know him. He's just taken to reading books. Right. Like in his 40s. And I gave like him- it's a, a revelation for Yeah. Him. I gave him Awaken the Giant. He said, if you've got a good book to start with, I gave him Awaken the Giant with him. Right. He's becoming cleverer. Yes. It's like awakening his brain. Yeah. So this is the point he's making in this book, is this information disparity and that ability of the salesperson to deliver value at the start of the meeting. To be really one up, you got to be in that game. Yeah, no, let, let's say, right. Or, or you've got to be ultra inquisitive, or you need to be furnished. Like they talk about in the challenger sale, you have to be furnished with the challenger content to sound like a challenger. Maybe, but let's take an example then. So that's you, salesforce.com, right? We use it. Yep. Is it month trial or something like that? I don't know now. I don't know if you can still buy it. For argument's way. sake, for sake of story, let's say it still is. So I work for salesforce.com, Johnny, you work for whoever. Samsung, they were that monitor. And, and, and you've downloaded salesforce.com and you're using it. There's a point at which you've got lots of information, but there's a point at which the salesperson can go in and go, why did you download it? Yeah. What are you using it for? And you can start that topic of conversation. I think actually what people aren't very good at is just asking good questions. Caring enough to ask good questions. Yeah. Being interested. Being interested. Yes. It goes a long way. Mm-hmm, I think so. Being really interested goes a long way. I always maintain I could have very, if there'd been enough money in it, I would have stayed at a parcel force forever. Really? Yeah, because I found the whole concept of moving parcels around the world fascinating. More fascinating than I've ever found any other job, but it paid £9,000 a year, so I had to leave. You <laughs> don't know what you don't know. One of the more helpful steps to improve your ability to be one-up is to recognise that you're mostly one-down. We've been talking about that for a bit, really. Yeah. In that we're actually entering into clients being one-down. Yes. And you have to recognise that and figure out how to bridge that gap, really. Much of the time, information disparity exists because your client does not understand what has changed outside of their company. That's quite a big topic, isn't it, I think? Much of the time, information disparity exists because your client does not understand what's changed. Yes. And this is my point about, I I truly believe if you're an enterprise level sales guy, you get paid to read The Economist every week, The Financial Times every day. Times on a Sunday. See, I don't think you do. You get paid to read stuff. You get paid to know shit your client doesn't know. Yeah, that's but, what you get Yeah, but paid. I know loads of stuff my clients don't know. Yeah. Because they you... only work for their company. It's not because they read the newspaper. It's because I've recruited for their competitors. And whilst I'll never give away competitor yep. information. So I met a client this week. You know I did. Uh, you the, read more than you make out, Pricey. I don't, I, don't, I don't follow the news. I'm not interested. I'm just not. I made a deal with myself a few years ago. I thought the news just isn't helping me at all. I'm just not adding value to my yeah, life. So I just stopped reading it. Driving my wife to distraction, obviously. But point being is, so I met this um, this company on Wednesday and we've dealt with their arch rival. Right. And I said to you how they sell. They compete absolutely head on. I now know that each company sells in a completely different way. There you go. But I didn't read a newspaper to find that out. No, I that's, just did my that's job. situational awareness, isn't yes. it? Exactly. So, okay, let's keep going. And then he talks about there are three types of salespeople. The one-up salesperson has recognised they have information unknown to their client that comes from their experience. So they... Where are you? I'm on page 57. So he goes, in my experience, there are three types of salespeople. The one-up salesperson has recognised they have information unknown to their client that comes from their experience. So they work to facilitate a needs-based buyer's journey. The one-down salesperson either does not have the experience to be one-up or does not act on their one-upness. The third type of salesperson is an order-taker offering no information. Like that, like that summary. And then he gives eight steps are increase urgency, build the guiding team, and then he gets a little bit more into 
staying down. And it gets a little bit waffly at this point. And then he talks about the value of being one up and information disparity. One reason I'm critical of the legacy approaches to sales is they advise salespeople against doing any free consulting. He's saying absolutely the opposite of that, isn't he? He's saying, actually, that's your job. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, absolutely completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Salespeople often complain about not wanting to be treated like a commodity, only to provide a conversation that has been irredeemably commoditized. Spot on. Yes, completely agree. Spot on. And then what he talks about, several areas you can explore to keep your insights fresh. And this is my point about the whole insight thing. Inside your four walls, i.e. at work, value of your client experience and challenges, what's working, what's not, and why, your experience and how to make change. He doesn't actually sit here saying you should be reading broadsheets, learning, learning, learning. He's just saying, actually, it's your responsibility to know more. In my book, I highlight stuff in blue if I'm going to do it. Blue. Yellow is I like it. Red is I'm going to talk to the author about it. Blue is I'm going to do it. Here is a prompt to help you get started. And he's on about reaching out. What did you learn working with your clients over the last 12 months? A list of 10 things we learned last year will provide enough insight to use in an executive briefing or as a conversation starter. I think 10 things we learned last year. I think there's a good marketing piece for us there, Johnny. Oh, I love that. 10 things we learned last year. I, I think that would be just superb. Where's that? What page is that on? Uh, it is learning from yourself. It's a sub section of learning. That's from just the marketing campaign in its whole right. That's how right, highlighted it in blue. Ten thing we learned from the industry last year. Yeah, I think people would that be for new business client generation. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I think clients would click on that. I do the ten things we learned last year. Like that, superb. I thought, and then he goes on to talk about it, and he said that's a good start for instead of an executive briefing. He said, you know, you yeah. can sit down and start with that. But I thought it was good for us for marketing actually. Yeah. Um, and then I'm on chapter four. Have we moved chapters? Starts with, I mean, quote from that terrible, boring songwriter. Like Paul McCartney or someone? No, it's Bob Dylan. Hold on. Oh, I'm on chapter five. I've moved to chapter five by accident. <laughs> no wonder you've gone through a lot of pages, Mike. So what's on chapter four whilst I'm going back? He's on about supporting client discovery. By the way, dear listeners, Johnny's got an app and he can only move a page at a time. It's just, I've sort of over-teched here, haven't I? Yes, clearly. Over-teched. Supporting client discovery. Here you go, Pricey. Often a client will enter the sales process because they're trying to solve a particular problem. They don't need a salesperson to discover something they already know. However, there are almost always other problems a client isn't aware of, and those unrecognised issues can prevent from being successful. I think that's just about good questioning, isn't it? You want to buy some CRM software, why? You lose it because we're losing clients, why? Why? Uh, I don't know. Well, maybe you ought to figure out why you're losing clients, then you should figure out whether you want to buy some CRM software and give me a call. You know, I've made that up on the spot, but that's the kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting here is he starts to get much more practical with this conversation now, doesn't he? He's yes. actually getting into some structure and insight transfer. Who needs to participate? You know, he's asked, like he's got a little ready reckoner here on page 76. 18 things you can help your clients to discover. One, their assumptions are outdated. Two, the nature of their mistakes. Three, etc. And that's that's really cool, actually. I liked that. I've, hi- I've highlighted every single one of the 18 things. And then questions that help clients discover. And again, he's sort of done like a little script here of how you would ask questions that help the clients I, I, discover. I highlighted the whole thing pretty much. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely excellent. Very good. Um, know, this is a good, to be clear, this is a good book, you know, because there's a lot of takeouts here. Yeah. Very rare I ever put something in blue. And I thought to myself, that really is a bluey, that. Yeah. And then we're on to chapter five. All right. You find chapter four a bit boring? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's getting practical now, so it's a bit less theoretical. Chapter five, he opens up with some real pseudo-intellectual stuff. 
about where he's mentioning Howard Bloom and uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which I'm actually reading currently. He references his book, The Black Swan. It's boring. Okay. I mean, and I'm I'm into my heavyweight intellectual shit. I thought Taleb was boring. And I, I have to say that on this particular page, this is intellectual posturing to create one-upness on his behalf with uh, us. With most as, people haven't read it. With most intellectual posturing on Anthony's behalf to create one-upness with us as his readers. So, uh, but isn't it I, interesting I, if you look at that? I, I just but isn't writing a book. Writing a book is all about one-upness. I've written a book about sales recruitment. That's just a, an act of one-upness, isn't it? Yes, I do like what he's saying about uh, having a, a higher resolution lens. Being one-up requires that you provide your client with a higher resolution lens. I like that metaphor, and then he talks about opening the aperture of the lens. Yes, I do like that as a metaphor, but that's because I like photography. The longer you've worked in sales, the more you'll see clients wait longer than they should address the forces that eventually harm their business. And that's very interesting because what he's talking about is lots of different instances in which the clients don't act quickly enough when you can see the storm coming. Yeah. We see it a lot and you can't ever say it to a client and I don't think the clients do. But you know, like quite often, I can just sort of tell that somebody's going to so, so, here, so I'll explain this better. So if a, if a salesperson has been at a company for nine months, I reach out to them. I wonder how many sales directors sit down with their salespeople after nine months and think, that one's going to leave. Not many, I don't think. I think they leave after 12 months and it's like, oh, bloody hell, someone's left. And I go, well, I could have predicted that for you. And I'm sure our clients have similar insights with their own clients. Well, he talks a little bit, doesn't he, about the point later on in the book of a customer that signed a three-year contract. Right, we've got three years to win that deal. Yes. You lose a deal to a client, to somebody else, they sign a three-year contract with your competitors, you've got three years to win the next deal. Correct. End of. And I think a lot of customers don't think that way. They think, oh, we lost the deal. He's saying is actually, no, you've got three years to win the next deal. Yeah, quite right. Three years to chip away at them now. But that's a sort of idealistic, isn't it? Because would you spend three years working on somebody who's just bought somebody else's product? No, but I'd automate it. Correct. Constant touch. They'd go into a marketing campaign. Um, and then he talks about this sense-making and one-upness. What do you make of all that? Uh, it depends what page you're on, really, Johnny. I'm on oh, page. So there we are. He said, I have a tough time with the negative stereotype of pushy, dishonest, and know-nothing salespeople, especially since he's persisted a long time. Ah, what do I think of it? Um, I don't like the opening sentence, obviously. But, I mean, the book... So, so, so I've highlighted this bit, actually. Let me see what I've put on my notes. Oh, here we are. Yeah, I thought this was great. He's put. He talks about complex decisions, and he's put, like, apparently every management framework, this one divides decision-making into four quadrants. And what he's talking about is your habitat, and I think this is a really nice way of describing a complex sales environment. And he talks about it as being simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic. And I think that's worth talking about, really, that. Did you read that bit? Yeah, I did. I never really sort of engaged with that. Maybe I was tired when I read it. What page are you on? Well, I'm a few pages after the start of the... Uh... Handling your habitat. I actually wrote yawn <laughs> uh, uh, on my page. <laughs> well, let, well, let's move on then. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah. I've, he says, nobody ever said that being one up would be easy. While you don't need to be an expert on chaos theory or complexity, you do need to know that you create value for your clients by helping them probe, sense and respond effectively. Fair enough. And then he talks about sense making and one upness. And I'm kind of pounding through these chapters now because I feel like he's spinning it out a bit. This is the point in the book where I'm like, yeah, I've got your message now. Yes, I did agree with that. I felt that early on I, I had a lot of value added 
in the reading the book, but as the further I got on, the, the value return diminished. Yes, it's getting a little bit intellectually posturing-y. Um, he's put here a, a bit, why decision makers and decision shapers seek trusted advisors? So I put. It's the same reason golfers have golf coaches. Yeah. At some point, you've got to find something that knows more about your subject than you and ask them Correct. how to do it. Of course we do. Absolutely. It's the, the, the same the world over, isn't it? Absolutely. I put advisors and coaches. Yes. Um, and then he puts here, the sales conversation is your only vehicle for creating value for your clients. If your client doesn't trust your advice, they won't buy from you. To gain that trust, you must give them a lens that provides a clearer view of their world and how best to approach the decisions required to navigate it. And I went, we can finish here. That's the whole book. <laughs> and what I have talked about, and, and I did make a note here, I was thinking as I read it this morning, was the book doesn't talk about, what it doesn't talk about is courage. and Because that's, that, that's just not cool anymore. But it takes courage to walk into a customer site Look the customer in the eye and say, this is what I think is going on here. Do, what, do you th so, so you think you need courage to have one-upness? Yes. And I think that actually that will only work for a specific segment and tranche of the sales audience. What, will trying to be one-up? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So it's a little bit like, I'm back on my golf game here now, Pricey. My golf coach turned around to me the other week and he said, I'm going to be honest with you, mate. We're in the track, man. Club path's all right. Your face angle's all right. Your angle of attack's all right. You're hitting the ball all right. There's not that much more we can do here now. He said, I can only assume your problem is mental. It's fair. I've said this to you before, haven't I, Johnny? And I was like, what? And he said, listen, we can polish little bits of this, but you hit the ball all right. We have to assume this is a, a mind problem with you. And I went, okay. He said, why don't you do this test? It's called My Mental Golf Type. And it's a Myers-Briggs test. Right, that's cool. That's designed, they've, been, they've rehashed Myers-Briggs for golf, and then they've done a whole load of training based on your Myers-Briggs personality type. So I come out, I think it's INFJ it's called, which is referred to as the peaceful warrior, which is that I'm quite introverted when I play golf. I like to be quiet. I don't like to talk. I like to be left alone. And what they're you talking sound like about a great is, golf partner. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I've realised I'm like the world's worst golf partner. Um, but Unless you find somebody else that's like right. you. We've all got personality types. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. And there are some salespeople who are very good carers, very good rapport builders. There's a, I think you, this is only going to work for a certain type of personality. And what type of personality are you saying this works for? I, I think you've got a lot of self-belief. You've either got to have self-belief yeah, or mean, you don't care. I'm not a Myers-Briggs expert, but I think you'd find actually, it's a, a, my nervousness is, I think this is something that will only work for a, a quite a, you know, that INFJ type, apparently there's only, it's like 1.2% of all respondents are INFJs. Right, okay. I, I think it's a small section, this. So do you reckon the guy that we nearly hired, so, you, so, so the guy that Charlotte competed against for the job that Charlotte got? No way could he do that. And he's a seller in the IT industry? He's a seller in the IT industry. There is no way in this universe he could walk into a customer's, not try and build rapport, and open with, right, rather than me sitting here and saying, I like football and you like football, here's what we're going to do today, Mr. Customer. I see, I get you. And, and then the woman that's my favourite woman... Yeah. She'd carry that off to a T. She'd be fine. She'd walk in and say, listen, I, this seems like a nice office. Rather than me sitting here all day and telling you all about us 
and me trying to make friends with you so you like me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I think is happening in your company right now and what's happening in the wider scheme of your industry. And then at the end of that, we'll start the conversation. How about that? And I'll give you a little update on what's going on out there. She could carry I off. Think, I think that takes nuts. It takes you one of two things, either nuts or not caring. So so Jacob Spence, who worked for us. He'd have been all right. Well, he, he always used to say the same thing. They're not going to punch me down the phone, are they? But he had an an enormous inner swagger. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. A quiet, assured inner swagger. I think that there's lots of people... I'm just thinking of, I'm, I'm actually, I'm visualizing my LinkedIn feed now of people who I see in the LinkedIn feed and I look at them and think, and I'm literally my brain's just firing through my LinkedIn feed and I'm thinking, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. Can you think it can be learned? Because this is a manual to learn something. I think, I think so. what you're saying is that it couldn't be learned. I think, you, you mentioned it earlier, it's a talent trap thing. This yes. is creating a talent trap. Yes. But I think the talent trap is a compounding one. Because actually, you A, need people who are talented, knowledgeable, experienced, wise, have something to say. Yeah. Unless, obviously, marketing are going to create that material like they talk about in Challenger Sale and Challenger Customer. And B, then you're going to need out of those people, there's only a percentage of them who will carry it off. True of all sales methodologies. True of being a salesperson. Yes, yes, yes. You know, there's only a percentage of them that will carry that off. That confidence to swagger in there and take the situational power right from the off. That takes a little bit of nuts, that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree. Nuts is one of the things, or equally, there's some people out there that just don't care what other people think of them. I don't think that's nuts, it's just a, yeah, whatever. But, that, but then again, that's even more talent trappy. That's time served. You don't stop caring what other people think of, you don't stop caring about what other people think of you about until you're about 40. Early 40s. That's start- a bit of a nature. My daughter, honey, she's a bit like, yeah, whatever. That's very, very self-contained then. She's that's like, yeah, she's your kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are obviously lots about, of people. I was into my 40s when I stopped caring what other people thought about me. Isn't that interesting? But your point is the application of this book into the general sales force. Actually, how easy would it be to apply? You're saying quite difficult because of the personality type required yeah, to be able I think to do he it. Forget, I think he forgets that, that there are other factors in play here about... It's brilliant, you know... Let's just say this book takes off like Challenger Sale takes off and every customer rings us in six months' time and says, I want a one-up man. Yeah, yeah. Rather, you know, you remember when Challenger Sale came out, every client wanted oh, a natural challenger. challenger. I want a real challenger. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Well, it's the same thing. Not everybody is a challenger. Not everybody can be a challenger, particularly if you're expecting them to come up with the challenging things to say. Mm. That's my objection with the book. But at the same time, I like the book. I'm on page... You're on chapter six, aren't you? I looked over your book, you're on chapter six. You just touched a page, yeah. Right. 105 I'm on. Let's see where I get. The advantage of your vantage point, that must be chapter six. Exactly chapter six, yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, It's interesting, he says, because we were just talking about this. As I warned you at the start of this book, the main threats to being one up are hubris and arrogance. Because isn't that interesting? That's what we were just talking about. Because yeah. there's a fine line between your own hubris and arrogance getting in the way of actually being one up. Because one up is about, as he says earlier on in the book, about guiding people thoughtfully through a process. And if you're arrogant, you can't do that. I tell you, there's a lot of one up personship from a knowledge base is your wife, actually. She knows an awful That's lot. That's the entire basis of her salesmanship. 
because she knows so much about yeah. the movement and workflow of documents within the NHS. Documents and referrals and all that she stuff. Get, at that point, she gets yeah. the workflow of the NHS. She, she has complete one-upness with extremely senior buyers in the NHS who ring her for advice. Yes. She's a trusted advisor. Yeah. Uh, and that's where she does really well. And then actually then she's not unhappy about chasing a deal down. Yeah, she's happy to close someone who said, do you want to buy it? Yeah. That's what she does very well with that. Anyway, the advantage of your vantage point. Yes. The best leaders are often the best diplomats. In this situation, for instance, blah, blah, blah. But I do agree with that. The best leaders are often the best diplomats, you know. Yeah, definitely. Then he talks, uh, he makes a really good point about why buyers can't buy. I really like that. Uncertainty, limited understanding, misalignment. You know, how many times do we get that misalignment in a company where HR want one thing, talent acquisition want another, sales want another? Very often. Uh, finance want another. Always finance. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and then it's always, what he's getting into now is sort of a little bit more around strategic selling, really, isn't he? He goes, the worst advice for salespeople. A friend wrote a LinkedIn post that included a statement, salespeople need to sell the way buyers want to buy. And he goes on and talks about it. Do you think salespeople need to buy the way, need to sell the buyers want to buy? Well, that he's, his point is that's the whole point of the book, isn't it? Is no. Because we'll make the gazillionaire, he sells our buyers want to buy. Now, admittedly, he doesn't sell IT. So. I think... We have to have horses for courses. You have to pick the right club out your bag at the right time, don't you? Yes, quite right. And play the right shot in the right scenario and make good decisions. And that requires situational intelligence and empathy. He then goes on to talk about, he said, why buyers can't buy? And he talks about the different reasons that buyers don't buy. I mean, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And I think this is a good wrap-up point, Mike. Okay. Um, I'm at, literally, I'm at page 120. So our next chapter is chapter seven, which is building your one-upness, which we'll talk about. And I think that'd be really interesting to see what's in there because I stopped there. That's, That's page fine. 120. So it's been an interesting show, Mike. We're enjoying this one. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said at the right at the very start, I've always drawn stickmen on a page and this is an explanation of that. Yeah, it's like I said, the, the Oren Claff book talks about situational power and this is a detailed dive into I've heard this to the Oren Claff book. Yeah, I mean, he just talks about power frames, doesn't he? Yeah, 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 he does, yeah. As I said at the time, I don't like that, really. That one person's got to be more empowered than the other thing. No, I like the concept of one-up. A gentle element of one-upness. Yeah, exactly, I agree. agree. And with that, we will see you on the next show. And remember, when we get through this book, every book goes through the 50-page test. Goodbye. Goodbye.